Good morning, everyone. Great to have you guys here today as we continue in our series, You Belong. Man, I tell you what, the kids did a fantastic job. I just love watching them sing. My grandson was up here as well, and it's always fun to watch them dance and sing and just have a blast. Wednesday evening is going to be so fun, so if you get a chance to be with us, I think you'll have a wonderful time. Also, Allison, man, what a video. Ten years this month, she has been here at Forest Park, has volunteered and served and just made Forest Park so much better uh, than it would have been without her. So it's so cool to watch that video of highlighting her and her work and service over the years. Well, we are in part three of the series, You Belong. We're going to wrap this series up next Sunday morning, Christmas Eve. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at what it means to belong to the body of Christ, to one another, and to this local church. And we've looked at it through the lens of Christmas. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you know that I said the whole kind of basis of part one was when God announced the greatest news the world ever received. That's the God of the ages wrapped himself in human flesh and was conceived in the womb of Mary. When he announced that he did so first to shepherds, humble, lowly, poor, uneducated shepherds, which says a lot about who God is and how he includes everyone, even the weak and vulnerable, those without clout and influence, yet they belong. Part two, last week, we said your individual story, as messed up as it might be, belongs in the overall story of God. We walk through one of the most clearest examples of radical inclusion, the lineage of Jesus recorded in Matthew, where God includes Judah and his brothers. Judah, one of the most unchristlike figures in all of the Old Testament, is actually included in the family line of Jesus. That lets us know even crazy, perverted, messed up stories like Judah's can belong. And now today, I'm going to do my absolute best to show you how not only do you belong in the body of Christ, not only do you belong to Forest Park Church, but you belong to a specific mission within the body of Christ. And that mission is to do whatever is necessary to let other people know they belong. When I was in college, I was willing to do almost anything in ministry except one thing. I did not want to become a pastor of a local church. I was willing to travel, lead other people to other countries, become a missionary, be a youth pastor, anything. But to me, the worst thing I could do with my life would be investing years straightening out hymnals and polishing pews and dealing with local church politics mainly because that reflected my experience with church. I grew up as a pastor's kid and a pastor's grandkid. And from my perspective, a pastor waded through choir robes and Sunday school material and paid bills and preached boring sermons to old people half asleep and constantly raised money through chicken dinner sales. And I simply could not imagine my life in a musty sanctuary and basement. But eventually, my eyes were opened, open to what the church is about and how God originally designed the church to function. And when my eyes opened... Man, I had a change of heart, and I became passionate about being a pastor of a thriving, growing, healthy church. My eyes were open to the power and to the beauty of a local church and what a church actually is. I began to see that a church is a community of people who follow Jesus and who love one another unconditionally. Now, that I wanted to be a part of. I began to see church as a collection, a community of caring and loving people from different races, cultures, and social backgrounds, serving one another. 
out of a desire to love and to honor God. I began to see uh, churches as um, that revelation, I should say, is when I saw that, that adrenaline just shot through my, my mind and my body. And as a young man, I became convinced that healthy churches are the only way that this upside down world is ever going to see any hope. And now, 30 years later, I am more convinced than ever that if we remain, and this is, this is kind of the heart of today's message, so you got to get this, if we remain focused on our mission, if we remain committed to the church's purpose, we have the best chance of bringing hope to the most people out of all the other possibilities around this world. But, and this is huge, if we get off mission, if we lose focus, we drift slowly toward being ineffective. If we do not intentionally resist mission drift, Forest Park will slowly glide the way of most churches, and I've seen it all across our country. Churches that started out with passion, started out with you know, celebration, started out with reaching people, slowly drifted toward being ineffective. And there's two words that I use to describe how a lot of churches end up over time. The first word is complexity. What do you mean? The church just becomes filled with red tape and committees and policies. If you want to make a decision, you got to wait six weeks for somebody to meet and make a decision that you can do X, Y, and Z. If you want to do this over here, well, we're not too sure about that because if we do that, this family might be offended or that family might be offended. So we're going to have to use politics and try to wiggle our way through making all these. The church just becomes complex. I grew up in churches that were very complex. It took forever to make decisions. Another word that I use to describe a lot of churches is insiders. They're just focused on insiders, the already convinced those who ought to be mature enough to feed themselves and care for themselves, they aren't. 20 years later, they're still not mature enough to take care of themselves. And the whole church is focused on those inside the building, all the convinced Christians. Basically, when a church loses sight of its mission, it falls prey to keeping insiders happy. Let me make it very clear from the beginning of this message. Church is not about keeping insiders happy. Well, Scott, what does keeping insiders happy look like? It looks like this. The leaders become concerned with what this person says or how this family feels rather than what is the right thing to do and what is the most effective way to reach people with the good news. It becomes about keeping people rather than reaching people. But the mission Jesus gave his followers was not about staying in your churches and keeping all the Christians happy. It was about going into all the world and reaching people and making disciples of all the nations. And in order to fulfill that mission, we have to reach those outside the church, not entertain those inside the church. Luke 15, probably one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, tells three back-to-back -back stories. Jesus, I mean, he just boom, 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 hit three different stories that all had the same message. He tells the story of the lost coin. He says if a person has a very valuable coin, this lady loses the coin, what will she do? She will turn the whole house upside down trying to find that valuable coin. And when she finds it, she will celebrate that she found the valuable coin. He then goes right into the next story, and that's the story of the lost sheep. 
This farmer has 100 sheep. One sheep gets lost. What does the farmer do? He leaves the shepherd. He leaves the 99 sheep that are safe and secure, and he goes after the one sheep who's lost. Then he tells probably one of the most famous stories ever, the story of the prodigal son. This man has two sons. One son stays home. One son leaves. The son who leaves goes out and spends his money and gets himself in a mess of trouble. But eventually the son comes home. And when he comes home, what does the father do? He throws a party. He celebrates that his son who was dead has now been made alive, resurrected. He's been lost and he is now found. And he celebrates the homecoming of his son. Those three stories back to back, that mission, the mission is clear. Basically, whatever it takes, look for, go after, love what is lost. Why? Because in each of these three illustrations Jesus gives in Luke 15, what was lost was valuable, and until it was found, until it was rescued, until it returned, little else mattered. And that passion to find what was lost emerges from a heart of love and compassion. And one thing is clear throughout the New Testament, God is love. He does not just have love. He is not a deity that contains love or part of himself has love. No, no, no. Scripture defines God as God is love. It is his very nature. He is the embodiment of love. And if I have something and I love that something, and that something that I love gets lost, I'm going to do whatever I got to do to go find that something. I cannot even imagine if one of my kids were lost. What would I do if one of my children became lost? What would I do if one of my four grandsons were lost? I would turn everything upside down. I would press stop on everything else in my life. I would spend whatever kind of money I had to spend. I would do whatever I had to do to go find what I love because what I love is lost. Some of you might not be able to identify with that illustration. So imagine your iPhone is lost. What would you do to go find your iPhone? Folks, if I have that much passion and I am a fraction, a billionth of a fraction of the kind of love God has, then how much love must God have? And what, would he, what is he willing to do to go after whatever is lost? And that message, God is love, changes the world. And that message, God is love, ought to fuel the church. But this is not the way a lot of churches think. When I was 18 years old, I picked up a book by A.W. Tozer and read one line in his book that challenged me deeply. The most important thing about you is not your weight or your education or your career or your salary or where you live or whom you marry. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. Why? Because what you imagine when you think about God operates like software behind the scenes. What you think about God changes and, and, and affects how you interact with people and who you welcome and who you don't and who you include and who you exclude. What you think about when you think about God affects your morals and if you have objective truth or subjective truth and do you give, do you not give, do you serve, do you not serve, what do you do with your time, what do you do with your talent, what do you do with your money. Everything is affected by what comes into your mind when you think about God. 
And the most important thing about a local church is the image of God that, that a church embraces and proclaims to its community. Why? Because what we think about God as a church operates like software in the back of our minds. So what our staff thinks about and what our volunteers think about and what our members think about when we think about God affects everything that we do in this church. Where we put our money, what we preach, what we sing, how we interact with people who show up on Sunday morning, every single thing we do at this church is affected by what we think about when we think about God. And some of us, some of us grew up in churches presenting God it's kind of like the classic grumpy old man in the neighborhood. That's the image we have when we think about God. Man, whatever you do, don't lose your ball in his yard. And I heard two kids went over the fence to get their ball, and they never came back. The old man is looking through the blinds, looking to see who's going to in his yard. That's the image we have of God. That's why some churches present God. God is the grumpy old man watching everything you do and doesn't want you to have any fun. And if it's fun, it must be wrong. Get out of my yard, you pesky kids. That's the image that some people have of God. Let me, let me kind of illustrate how I saw God for many years when I was a kid. Probably Linda, why I didn't want to become a pastor. When I was a kid, God was like an old family friend. My family would visit every few months or so over in Ohio. My stepfather grew up there, and so we had friends there, family there, and every few months or so, my mom and my stepdad and myself, we would get in a car, and he would drive us over to Ohio, and we would go visit this family friend. And I did not want to go to this house. I did not want to visit this family. They were much older than my parents, and their house was, you got to be respectful when you walk in, and it was super quiet, and it was clean, and it was organized, and it was obvious no kids lived in this house. And when everybody would kind of get quiet, you could hear the grandfather clock ticking. Just tick, tick, tick. And I just remember sitting there as a child, so bored. I just wanted to run. I wanted to play. I wanted to, you know, do something. And my parents wouldn't let me get off the couch because no doubt I would break something. And I wanted to break something. I wanted to have some tension release in this house because it was so quiet. And for a lot of people, that's the way they see church. That's the way they see God's. It's God's house. You've got to go and be respectful. So parents will say to their kids, okay, it's get your clothes on. We've got to go to church. The kid's like, why do I have to go to church? We're going to God's house. That's why. Well, I don't want to sit and be uncomfortable the whole time, Mom. It doesn't matter if you're uncomfortable. We're going to church. You're not supposed to be comfortable. It's not about you. It's about God and God's house. You're supposed to sit quietly and listen to the preacher. Well, Mom, I don't understand what he's saying. It's a sermon, sweetheart. You're not supposed to understand what he's saying. That's the way a lot of people experience church. For many people, boring, unhealthy churches presenting God like a grumpy old man or like the home of a distant friend formed their image of God. That's how they see God. And how you see God affects everything that you do in life. Where you give your money, where you spend your time, how you live, what you choose to entertain yourself with, how you live, everything is affected by what you think of when you think of God. So a mom and dad, this is kind of the experience that I've seen so many families have. Some of you right here, you're going to identify with this. 
her mom and dad dragged their kids to church. This little boy, we're going to church today, and he's bored and he's confused and he's uncomfortable, but they would go anyway. Year after year, these kids go to church. Year after year, these kids go to church. Boring churches, churches without a mission, churches focused on insiders, churches about politics, churches about red tape and committees, no mission, no real drive to reach people. Just this church exists like the old grumpy man, and the kids go to that church year after year after year, and then the kids grow up. And you know what they do when they grow up? They walk away from church. Now they don't have to go. Now mom and dad doesn't make them go. They can drive on their own. And guess where they go? They drive a long way from church. But then what happens, and I've been here long enough to see this over the years, the kid goes to college, starts a business, gets married, has kids, and they realize at some point that life is a whole lot more than what they thought it was. And maybe they develop an addiction or their first marriage is busted. Maybe they start suffering from depression. And they start rethinking life. And they don't know what to do now. You know what they're not doing? Not going to church. Been there, done that, didn't work. But somebody invites that person to Forest Park. And they show up on a Sunday morning. And when they do, I don't want them to experience a musty, stale, red tape, committee-driven, boring church just like they left when they were teenagers. I want them to meet Jesus. And I want them to find hope and peace and healing and wholeness in Christ and for the first time, their eyes are opened and their mind is expanded and their heart overflows. And finally, Jesus reveals who God actually is. And God changes that young man's life. That's what I want. Introducing people to Jesus, why is that important? Because the central reason Jesus came was to reveal who God is and to lead us out of darkness into light, out of bondage into freedom, out of ignorance into truth. God wrapped himself in human flesh, lived among us so that we could finally see God and figure out who he is and what his heart is about and what his passions are and what he cares about and what he loves and what he doesn't love. And Jesus came to reveal that God to us and correct the distorted views we had of God. That's Christmas, my friend. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about finally being able to have a right relationship with God so that we could carry the right image of God to the ends of the earth and let other people know they also can have a right relationship with God. That's what Christmas is about. It's about God coming into our world, wrapping himself in human flesh, and showing us for the first time who God actually is. And what did Jesus reveal about God? What did he tell us? Jesus revealed above and beyond any other attribute, far and away from any other lofty idea. Jesus revealed that God is love. John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in all of Scripture. If you don't even know this verse, 
Go to a baseball game. Go to a basketball game. Somebody's going to hold it up or something. And you just read John 3.16. What does it mean? It says, for God so what? Loved the world that he what? Gave his one and only son. For God so loved the world. Not so hated the world. It doesn't say for God so hated the world, he came down here and straightened all of us out. It doesn't say, so, 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 so God so condemned the world that he came down to make sure that we knew we were wrong. It doesn't say that God was so frustrated with the world that he came down to correct everybody's theology. It doesn't say any of those things. It says God so loved, it was love that motivated Christmas. It was love that motivated him to come and to give. And how did God show his love for the world? He gave. He gave. And what did he give? Himself. How? How did he give himself? By accepting people? By loving people? By including people? By creating pathways for people, and he did it all the way to the cross, eventually dying for people. And while he was on the cross, even the people who nailed him there, put him on the tree, put the crown of thorns on his head, beat his back to a pulp, all of the things that happened on the cross, even while he was hanging on the cross, bleeding profusely, he looked to the people who were standing around, and even in that moment, he continued to give forgiveness to those who did this to him. All people, the good, the bad, the weird, the confused, the broken, the religious, the indifferent, the people other people feared, the people other people rejected, all of it. Matthew 9. As Jesus sat down to eat in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. But when the Pharisees, a.k.a. insiders, <laughs> it doesn't mean every insider is a Pharisee, but play along with me. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your insiders eat with outsiders? Why, why is it that those who are religious eat with those who are not religious? Why is it that those who are already convinced of the truth eat with those who are not yet convinced? Why are you mixing all this together? What's the big deal? Now, in our world, you know, if you're going to eat a cheeseburger, you probably don't care who's sitting around and who you're at the table with. But in this particular culture, eating with people mattered. Within Jesus' culture, people ate with friends. Eating with someone was a gesture of intimacy. It was a gesture of trust. One did not sit down and just eat with anybody. Eating with someone said, I want to be your friend. I want to enter into a relationship with you. And because Jesus accepted the tax collectors and the sinners, the tax collectors and sinners embraced Jesus and invited him to their home to eat with them. So it was both back and forth. Jesus invited them, and then they would turn around and invite him. Luke 15, I didn't put this on the screen, but Luke 15, 1 says, all the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. You know what that tells me? Whatever message he had, the tax collectors and sinners must have loved it because they would constantly gather around Jesus to hear more about what he had to say. Verse 2 says, the Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling. It still happens today. Hey, do you know who's going to Forest Park? 
Hey, do you know who's actually attending? Hey, do you know who's on the worship team? Hey, do you know who's part of the greeting team? Hey, do you still grumbling and complaining about outsiders getting involved in the church? It happened then, it happens now. Verse 2 says, the Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Like, oh, that's a horrible thing. That's what they said. What's interesting is Jesus went out of his way to make outsiders feel like insiders. He intentionally broke tradition. He intentionally extended a hand of friendship to outsiders, people the insiders rejected. And he did it over and over and over again, and it ticked the insiders off. But Jesus went further. He didn't only eat with the outsiders, but Jesus also went so far as to lay his life down for the outsiders. 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know love. 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 Say it over and over and over until you realize that this is the definition of love. Here it is. Jesus laid down his life for us. That's love. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He taught us to love, and we are to love. John wrote this, 1 John 3.16, later in his life. I can imagine when John, he's called the apostle of love because of his emphasis on love. I can imagine John throughout his younger years when he first encountered Jesus, he thought he understood love. I can imagine John said something like this. I thought I knew love. I thought I understood what it meant to love someone. I didn't. I had no clue. I thought love was just being kind or showing compassion, but it wasn't until I met Jesus that I learned what love is. And now I understand what it means to love someone. Love goes far beyond emotion, far beyond a feeling one feels. No, love sacrifices. Love gives. Love hurts. Love lays down one's life. That's love. The greatest expression of love is giving. So we love when we give. What do we give? Our money, our time, our gifts, our abilities, our very lives so other people can live. Love is expressed when those inside the church give to those outside the church. We lay our lives down for those who are not like us, who are different than us, who see things differently than we see them. That's when we move into the arena of love. The greatest expression of love is not loving insiders loving insiders. The greatest expression of love is not when Christians enjoy being around other Christians. The greatest expression of love is not when you do what you enjoy doing. The greatest expression of love is when insiders love outsiders. It's when Christians eat with non-Christians, inviting them into and loving them. When Evan, my son, was three years old, he had a small plastic basketball goal in his room. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's a little rim, you know, a little plastic goal, a little Nerf basketball. And I'd be working on something or, you know, something I was doing for another job. 
And he would come up, and Daddy, I want to play basketball in my room. And I'd be like, okay, you know, but I'm busy. I got this going on, this going on. Oh, Daddy, come on, come on, come on, you know, please, please, please. I didn't want to quit what I was doing. I was trying to get finished. I wanted to, you know, help Lana prepare dinner. She had, was working all day. I was working all day. We only saw each other in the evening and all that. But he would beg and beg and beg. And, of course, you know, a father's heart. So I'd go in his room. We'd close the door. For about two hours, man, we'd play. I'd throw him around and basketball and always let him win. You know, he would always end up winning at the end, and he loved it. And I did it. Why? Because I found joy in his joy. When I was a child, I used to go to my grandmother's house and tear it up. I mean, tear it up. I'd pull out her pots and pans and cushions off the couch and quilts out of her closets. I mean, if you visited her, you knew if I was there. We didn't have iPads and computers and everything else. You had to go find something to do. And I found something to do every time I went to her house. I'd bring out spoons and banging them on the pots and make drums and everything else. And she let me. I'd tear everything up, and she'd clean it all up after I left. You know why? Love. Evan messed up my schedule because I loved Evan. My grandmother's house was messed up because she loved me. Love sacrifices. Love gives. Love allows itself to get messed up. And my passion for Forest Park is to allow those whom we love to mess us up. You know what that means in a church setting? It means we change our schedules to accommodate those who are outside. We, we, we get our checkbooks and we say, how much does it cost to reach people? And we write a check for it. And we do, hey, where, where can I serve? Where can I give? What can I do? Let's mess everything up if we have to because we're going to love those who are outside. Whatever we got to do to meet those people where they are, let's meet them. But too many churches function like the people inside the church matter more than those who are outside the church. Insiders-focused churches cater to people who are already convinced and ignore or pay little attention to those who do not believe, who doubt, or who are confused by church and Christianity. I don't want to be that church. I've seen too many churches go that way. I don't want to become a church focused on making sure you who are already convinced, those of you who are, those of you who already say you follow Christ, all it's about making you happy. I don't want to be a part of a church like that. I don't want to lead a church like that. You don't have to come here to hear great sermons. They're everywhere. You don't have to come here to hear great music. It's everywhere. You don't have to come here to consume what we offer. It's everywhere. We have a mission here, however, and that's to reach your family and your friends and help other people who are not connected to connect and people who are hurting to find healing and people who feel hopeless to have hope. That's why we exist. That's why we say show up. That's why we say give. That's why we say join our worship team, get on the first impression scene, get into the nursery. Help us accomplish a mission. If we don't have a mission, let's close the place down. That's how I feel about it. Mark 2.17, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, they are the ones that this is about. I didn't come to call the choir. 
I didn't come to call the Sunday school teachers. I didn't come to call the already convinced. I didn't come to call the Christians. I came to call those who are sinners, those who are in need. It's no wonder why Jesus ate with people who were outcasts, spoke with those who were far from God, rubbed shoulders with the broken, lost, and confused. He was on a mission, a mission to reach those outside the established religious elite. For the Son of Man came to seek and save. What? The lost. The what? The lost. He came here for a purpose. What was the purpose? To seek and save the lost. The lost. It was about reaching the lost, the coin, the sheep, the, the, the son. It was about reaching those who were broken and lost and outside. That's what it's about. Boris Park is passionate about reaching people who are far from God behind every message that I try to present here. It's about that. That's why we talk about depression and hurting and brokenness and, 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 and addictions. That's why we are always talking about marriage and relationships and friendships and trying to help you discover a purpose in life that's beyond what you see in front of you. That's why we're talking about all the things we do here. Why? Because we're on a mission to seek and save that which is lost, that which is lost, that which is lost. Why? We love people. That's why. And people are messed up. Come on, that was a perfect time to say amen. I don't, certainly I don't have to spend 20 minutes convincing you of that, do I? People are confused. People are broken. People think life is better without God. We're no better. We sin. We're deeply flawed. We're selfish. Every day we need God's grace just as much as anybody else. And we want to demonstrate a love and a grace so encompassing and so powerful that God is seen in and through us. We want people to experience God's love, his acceptance, his compassion, even if they reject it, even if they mock it, even if they walk away from it all. We still want to extend it over and over and over. So you know what that means? It means we don't expect a lot from those outside the church. When people outside the church come in, people who don't believe come in, people who are living all kinds of different ways that you might not agree with, people who vote differently than you do, people who see life differently than you do, and they walk in, you know, we don't expect a lot. They can sit where they want, sing only if they feel comfortable, come late, leave early, act like outsiders. Don't expect a lot from them. But here's where it gets sticky. Here's where it gets sticky. We expect a lot from those inside the church. You. If you're here this morning and you say, I'm a follower of Christ. If you're here this morning and you say, you know, I'm saved. Whatever word you want to use to describe your relationship. If you're here and you say you're inside the church, then we expect a lot from you. We expect, you know what I mean? We, we expect you to change your preferences to accommodate.